Welcome to the Aces Hoopcast, where we discuss all things University of Evansville, Purple Aces Hoops. I am your host, Rex Simmermaker, and today also with me is voice of the Aces, Jevin Redman. Jevin, how are you today? Hey, Rex. Pretty good. How are you? Hey, uh, thanks for co-hosting the show with me today. It is episode number 17. We are in mid-March. Um, simply one of the craziest times in history. Uh, we did end the season nine and 23 after losing to Valpo in the Missouri Valley tournament. Um, this whole season was wild and, uh, just essentially every single bit of it was strange. So, um, in an effort to continue the season, like it has never been, we're going to do something completely different today. And, uh, Jevin's going to join me for the entire show. So, uh, he he's uh, very gracious to come on with us, and you heard him on episode number four. So if you have not heard episode number four at this point, stop the show right now. Go back to that. Listen to Jevin. He has a great backstory for this, and that will really help you for the rest of today's show. But I get it. We lead busy lives, so do what you do while you're listening to the Hoopcast. Uh, make your commute to work. Clean your closet. Get your workout in. But metaphorically speaking, take a seat. Grab your popcorn. Cheer for the Aces, because here we go. Jevin, um, my man, uh, you sat five feet away from whoever was the head in the head coach's chair all season long. Uh, so you had a very unique perspective on this season. Uh, thanks for being here with me today. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, you know, it's uh, it was a unique four four months of Aces basketball. It's a unique time now in the world, and I'm actually on uh, vacation for my other job this week. And with everything that's going on, there's not a whole lot to do. So I appreciate you having me on and. Uh, getting a distraction here for the next hour yeah normally i would ask who okayed your vacation time but uh but uh, <laughs> that's a little bit different right now in the world isn't it <laughs> it is yeah and uh, you know it's it's something that we haven't seen really ever in, in the world for people that are living right now and we saw a lot of that you know this basketball season with ue and i think when you list off everything that happened over the three and a half four months mm-hmm. you know that would be a pretty busy five years for a, for a program let alone a single season right and uh, you know i know we'll talk about a lot of different aspects um here in the next hour about how it was handled internally and the fan support and where you go from here but looking forward to that chat and you know i think it's uh I'm trying to think how to phrase this i don't want to say i'm glad the season's over but i think for everyone once that final game was done everyone just kind of took a deep breath and realized okay we got through it now we can move forward um it was something that we didn't anticipate and we got through the best we could and now it's time to move on i couldn't agree more i think uh sometimes fresh starts are needed and um and our aces program uh needed i think needed one after the this year but uh let's let's go way back let's start with the beginning of the season and think back i mean because this whole season has just been crazy um no, no one could have predicted it um the ups the downs the just the change of events but I mean think about this when we went back to 
you know, the beginning of the season, how much optimism there was around the program. You know, Coach McCarty was starting year two. We had guys like DeAndre Williams, San Cunliffe, Art Lubinovitz, you know, ready, had been in the, you know, practicing for a year ready. I mean, think about that. And uh, what was the biggest takeaway you had from the beginning of the year, Jevin? Yeah, there was definitely, uh, you know, anticipation for the year to get started. I, I go back into October. We were wrapping up those coaches' caravans that uh, we did through Learfield. Brandon McClish did a great job in the summer, put five together where all the UE coaches came out and, uh, you know, talked with the fans at different locations throughout Evansville. And the turnout for that was was great. And, uh, you know, Coach McCarty made an appearance at all those and talked about the team, talked about their Europe trip and just kind of what to expect going into the season. So when he went into October, we were ready for that first game. It was an exhibition game against USI. And the anticipation was what was on paper. You had the, the three talented guys coming in, Art Lebenowitz, Sam Cunliffe, DeAndre Williams. We saw that in year one where it was a change of change of pace, change of play. And I would say in year one, they overachieved with what many people thought they would do. I know they only won five conference games, 11 games overall, but I think how they competed in every game. And they were fun to watch. Um, so looking to build off that. So you go into the season, you get U.S. on that exhibition opener, and, and it's just kind of fun to break down the different stages of the season. You go in, you're playing a Division Two team. It's my alma mater. Uh, very good Division Two program. But with UE, you're expected to, to win that game. And you know, we almost lost it. You go into overtime. Remember, Art missed those three free throws into the uh, second half. Yep. Going to overtime, you win by three. So we had all that anticipation going into that game. Then we left that night. And the fans were thinking, well, is this team really going to be good or not? I mean, there was some question marks even more so after that game. And, I mean, from my approach, I try to keep a level head. I mean, I didn't really get too worked up over over one exhibition game. I knew this team was still pretty talented and thought they'd win their handful of games. So you go into the regular season uh, opener with Ball State. They were up like 40-18 to 18 at one time and, and almost blew that game. Uh, one by four, but you still feel pretty good at the Ball State game. Then, of course, the U.K. win game two of the season – and, you know, that, that win was a blessing. It was also a curse for this group, I think. Um, you know, it's one of the more memorable moments, I'm sure, in the regular season in UE history, if not the most memorable. Um, but that placed a target on, on many of these guys' back. Um, they take care of the IU Kokomo win, and then you get that good SMU squad. You lose by two. And I heard some people say, well, it's a letdown. They lost to SMU by two. And I really thought it was impressive that they competed with, with them. Um, we saw how good SMU was the rest of the season. But So you leave that, you know, first start of the season where you're three and one. And uh, not to rattle off every game, you go to the Bahamas, you lose a couple you shouldn't. So it was a very rocky start that first month of the season. Many people didn't know what to expect the rest of the year. I thought, well, let's kind of let it play out. But if you go back to the Kentucky win, Rex, I'm sure you were very excited. Um, everyone thought, well, this team might have a chance to win the conference and, and win 20 more games. I still remember the day after the Kentucky game. I think it went on like 10 or 12 different radio shows throughout the, the U.S., different locations. You were popular talk about that then, game. Huh? Yeah, it was, it was a busy 24 hours. We can talk more about that game uh, later. But I was telling people, I said, you know, I think this group is a bit raw. They're very talented, and this win's going to stand out. But I had them at 17 wins before the season started. You know, I think everything played out. I thought they'd be a little, be a little above 500. Um, I was hoping I was wrong to where they would exceed that mark. But even at the Kentucky game, I thought, well, it is just one game. Um, you know, if UE plays Kentucky 100 times, they probably maybe win once or twice, just to be honest with you. It was just a perfect storm. So sure. I had them just a little above 500 still. But I think that U.K. game maybe placed some unfair expectations on this group. Yeah, I think I think that is um, entirely true. I think everything you said is entirely true. And, you know, with kids especially, I mean, it happens to adults as well, but kids especially, success um, can give you some false insecurity sometimes. And certainly with basketball players, I mean, you know, they come out and 
you know, it's, it is, it's the greatest win uh, for the school in a long, long time, maybe ever, um, you know, in terms of national recognition and put this, you know, Evansville in the spotlight nationally, which is great for the school. Um, but it, like you said, there were, um, you just got some things that we were missing, got covered up and, you know, it just, sometimes if you don't address your weaknesses, it can come back to haunt you. I mean, you know, just, you'd think that we could go to Kentucky and win and then SM beat SMU and then East Carolina, who are both really good teams, uh, but they're not at the level of Kentucky. Um, and we, you know, struggled with those AAC teams. So it, um, you know, it kind of uh, was a little bit of fool's gold, maybe early, um, certainly something to build on. I mean, it, you know, you get a win like that and you've got to kind of think it allows you to dig in a little bit because you know that if you get close, um, and you, know, you take a team like Northern Iowa, who was close this year, who would have, you know, potentially could have been an at-large team. Well, now if, if you're close, and and the NCAA committee is trying to decide whether it's you or somebody else, now you've got that on your resume, and that probably tips the needle a little bit. So, um, certainly a blessing and a curse. And what we saw, I think, was the curse of that when we went to the Bahamas uh, a week or so later, um, which, you know, we started with East Carolina, um, did not play well in that game. Uh, George Washington handled us pretty easily as well. And then we ultimately won uh, in thrilling fashion in triple OT against Morgan state, which, um, <laughs> well, you were there. It was that whole uh, weekend was, was pretty uh, phenomenal in one way or another. Right. It was, and uh, I think I used the word interesting 10 times throughout the season about, you know, a certain moment or a certain sequence of events, but that was an interesting trip in more than one way, but you're right. The East Carolina and George Washington games were, were letdowns. I honestly thought the Friday night game against East Carolina, they lose by 17, and this kind of chalked it up to one of those nights where they didn't play well. It was really the first time all season they hadn't played well, yeah. and you talk about the travel down there, just getting out of routine a bit the setup in the ballroom you know was was different where capacity is probably what like 300 people they just had chairs basically sitting around the court like a junior high gym yeah um, i loved it just, i loved it because i'm a junkie and i was like hey this is great i'm right on the court but it was different there's no doubt about it and and i give i give the tournament people credit because that was like plant c of what they could put together with you know the hurricane that went through there a few yeah. months before and they yep. Really wanted to have it in a different ballroom, you know, a couple hundred feet down the hallway, but there was a large poker tournament going on that weekend. So uh, they did tell me the next year when they hosted, they're going to have it in that larger ballroom, which I think will be a better setup. Um, But they they did the best they could. But, yeah, it's just a a unique trip there. And George Washington game was a letdown. Then Morgan State, you went in triple overtime, and you had the the foul debacle where didn't know how many fouls a certain player had. I think it was was Juwan or DeAndre fouled out. They only had four fouls, and it was just a mess. But – so they won that game by three, and, you know, I, I remember seeing some comments on, on social media just like, well, what's up with this team? Why can't they play the team that beat Kentucky? And that was always the, the topic of conversation, you know, wherever we went on the road. Well, how does this team get back to how they're playing when they beat Kentucky? And my response was, well, even when they beat Kentucky, when did this team this year ever play consistently well? Right. Um, yeah, that was one night where they beat a the number one team, but they never went really a four-or-five stre- four stretch where I thought, okay, this team's rolling, they're playing good offense, they're playing good defense, they're getting very comfortable. Even when you go through that winning streak uh, from November 24th through December 14th, you know, they barely beat Western Illinois, who was pitiful. They they won by four. Miami, Ohio, you allowed 87 points to them. Um, I thought the Green Bay game, they played well. They went by 10 on the road. 
IUPUI was well below 500. You're down by 10 at halftime. So I think when you break down the non-conference schedule, I don't know how successful it was necessarily. Yeah, you, you're 9-4, and four, and you have a couple of good wins against Kentucky, Ball State, and Murray State. But there was never a stretch in there where I thought, oh, they're playing well both offensively and defensively. This team will get rolling in the conference season. Yeah, there's two takeaways for me. One is, and I've you know been thinking about this a lot with this recent stock market, um, in that uh, you go down in an elevator, but you take the stairs up. And um, it reminded me that that's that's how almost everything in life is, um, and certainly basketball teams. So you know, like you come off uh, after that Kentucky win, and then you know go to the Bahamas, and the thing just hits the barrel, right? Well, the way to get consistent is take the stairs and and put in the work and do all the things you got to do. And you know, it looked like to me that they had started that process and really the the best win. I thought was that Murray State game. You know, it, it was at that point where you beat mm-hmm. Murray State. They're a really good team. Um, it, you know, it took overtime, but um, but that was that's a good team and ultimately was a good win on the schedule, even if it was at home and even if it was in overtime. Um, that was the first time that, to your point, I thought, man, this team now has a chance because they're understanding the grind. They're understanding, you know, where they can get good looks, um, not just taking shots and hoping they go in and, you know, get to the next possession. So um, I, I'm with you in that there was some consistency problems, but I was optimistic um, after Murray yep. State. I, I truly was. Um, and then at that point, uh, I don't know if the wheels fell off. I don't know if that's the right phrase, but things started happening. Um, and that was when we got notification that Coach McCarty was – uh, going to be put on suspension and and I don't know were you privy to any of that stuff um, before the rest of us I I know where I was and I remember just starting to get text and the phone just went nuts after that yeah I do uh, it's one of those one of those days especially when you're a part of it that you'll never forget what you were doing and where you were um, it was December 27th a couple of days after Christmas and I'd actually had not to give too many details, but I had a real bad flu virus Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, and then I took the next day off at work just to kind of get back to normal. And I remember driving in the morning to work on December 27th, thinking, okay, if I finally got through the flu, I can get back to normal now and get ready for the conference season and kind of get back into the groove. And then I just walked into work, and, and my, my phone rang, and my boss, Brandon McClish, called me and kind of gave me a heads up on what was coming. And so I found out it was about two hours before everyone else did. So I really wasn't all that far ahead of the curve and uh, was I just remember just kind of sitting there for like an hour just trying to digest okay what does this mean for the rest of the season how serious is this I made a few more calls to people at UE trying to find information before it got released then it came out to the public and like you said you know your phone started to blow up with text message after text message hey what's going on what do you know I'm like well even if I knew I couldn't share it with you um but yeah it was it was kind of a surreal couple of hours they're like is this really happening after the team goes nine and four. You had that signature win against Murray State. You're feeling pretty good heading to conference play. And Rex, to be honest with you, they're sitting nine and four. I'm thinking, okay, I'm still going to stick with my 17 wins. I feel pretty good. I think they can finish around 500 in Valley play. Knew the Valley's going to be stronger this year. Right. Then all this stuff happened, and then you go into that Missouri State game. Such a weird feeling going on the road. That game really was so much uncertainty. What was, what was upcoming? Yeah, I mean, and you know that that Missouri State game. First of all, we knew going in was a tough game, right? Missouri State is picked to win the league, uh, talented group. So you go on the, the the road and lose that one, and 
truthfully, we played pretty well, and then and then late, I thought just no, we didn't shoot the ball well that game. Um, and so, you know, like you you can kind of chalk that one up still, right? To hey, you know the the season's not over yet. I think at that point, even and Coach Seltzer had been um, appointed the interim head coach, and you know we like Benny and. He he's been around college basketball a long time, so uh, knew the guys, felt good with that. But um, it, it, to me, um, it, you know that I hadn't put the panic in myself at, even after that loss, and I didn't think we played well. But still, um, you know, were, was the panic in you at that point yet? No, honestly, I left that game after Missouri State feeling better about the group than I did going in. Um, as far as the whole situation with the past few days. Uh, you know, they're up eight at halftime, 31-23. Then they, they get outscored 42-21 in the second half. And I really chalked that up to just kind of a poor night shooting the basketball. They were three for 22 from downtown. They shot 33% in the second half. So I thought, well, you know, they went on the road against a team that is expected to finish at the top of the valley. They're up at halftime. Um, you know, they're, they've got a lead, you know, early in the second half. And they struggled shooting the ball. So I thought, well, maybe this group will be okay. And, and responded under Coach Seltzer. And I think any time – you get news like you you did with Coach McCarty there over Christmas break. Your first thought is, well, this is probably going to be a lost season to some degree. Um, we'll see how big of a lost season it is. So I thought, well, maybe they can they can ride the ship just a bit and, and you know, win a handful of Valley games until salvage somewhat of this year. Then you go to the Valparaiso game at home, and, man, you're up five with about two minutes to go and ends up going at overtime and you lose by two. That was the game DeAndre was like 11 for 13 from the field and you know shot the ball very well. Right. But it's a game you should have won. So you're sitting at 0 and 2, and you know I think after that game I wasn't really sure what to think the rest of the year. Yeah, it got a little dicey, and, and because you, you would at that point in time, you would have thought you could got to win against Valpo. Now what mm-hmm. we know is that Valpo was really putting in the work, and you know they got better as the season went on. But uh, but at that point, you you kind of felt like we should have got that one, um, mm-hmm. and then. You know, we come home, we play Bradley, and then the wheels just that, – that was really uh, – that was a tough one. You know, we get kind of drilled at home by Bradley. But that was the first game that DeAndre uh, was not there. Right. And I still remember a certain moment in that game. So we get to halftime, and uh, the announced attendance that night was like 4,500. don't think there was quite that many many people there, but that was the announced attendance. Okay. And so we get to halftime, and they just scored 19 points. They're down 15. And this is the second home game after the Murray State win where there was almost 8,000 people there throwing victory. And I turned right. to my partner, Scott Treffler, at halftime and just kind of looked around and could tell some people were leaving. Um, it was just a very empty feel. And I said, two and a half weeks ago, we just beat Murray State in overtime at throwing victory. I said, are we really at the moment we are right now? And we just kind of stared at each other like, is this really happening? Yeah. And I think at that moment we thought, okay, the, the wheels might start to fall off, especially with no DeAndre. I think even if you had Coach McCarty and DeAndre gets hurt, you know they're still going to struggle to put together some wins. I think, but you add all that up, you go into the Lola game on the road and score 44 points. And I actually didn't travel with the team that game. I had some things going on Friday, so I drew up separately with Kyle Peach, and uh, we went out to eat afterwards. And I thought, well, where do we go from from now? Where do we go from here? And uh, you know, I don't think either one of us really knew the answer. It was just very concerning. Um, and you go to Indiana State and you score 42 points. And I just remember driving home that night thinking, gosh, it's the middle of January. We still have a month and a half left to go in the year. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
how do you how do you not only start to win games, but how do you get competitive once again? Because you almost felt helpless in that moment. So um, I think that was the lowest of the lows was probably those two games, January 11th at Loyola and the 15th against Indiana State. Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, the and I'll give um, you know the the guys. I mean, I and I played and I played well when my you know brain is clear of all the other emotions and thoughts and all that stuff. And they just could not have been in a good space. Uh, mentally at that point in time there's been you know so many changes the guy that they you know showed up on campus to play for wasn't around anymore the rumors probably at that point were just uh probably amazing I mean I wish um you know you know true or not I bet some of the rumors were incredible and um you know at that point then then also Benny is trying to tweak the system a little bit because when you put up 42 or 44, um, you know, like you better tweak it. So now they're they're trying to learn new wrinkles of the offense, mm-hmm. and that just that's a recipe for disaster. You know, it just truly right. is. Yeah, I think that's one thing that gets lost throughout this whole process is it's how the players handled it. I don't think they could have handled it any better than they did. I mean, you can you can talk about oh, I wish they would have won a few games, but ignore all that. Just how they went about it. They competed each and every night. Um, you know, with the exception of those couple of games against Loyola, Indiana State, I thought they competed and they were in a lot of contests. Um, sometimes they were just outmanned. But I think, you know, their their process with how they prepared for each game, watching that internally never changed. They were very upbeat. They were encouraging each other um, the best they could. But you talk about trying to ignore the distractions off the court and then play for a different coach with a, with a fairly different system. And then a few weeks later, bring another coach with a different system. So now your head's spinning with three different systems in about an eight-game span. Right. And then only having maybe one or two practices, and they're not even full practices, in between each game trying to grasp that. And then going out and playing against a tough Missouri Valley Conference opponent, you know, that's almost impossible to, to, to win. And uh, I think the guys, like I said, handled the best they could. We'll get to Coach Licklider coming in here in just a moment. But, you know, Todd basically came in and said, look, we can't, we can't do an overhaul middle of the year. I have to put in certain pieces trying to make them be effective and hope that works in certain games. Um, but, you know, your hands are kind of tied at that point. Yeah, there's no no doubt. I mean, it's uh, it's kind of holding on for dear life at that point and just trying to make sure every day you, you take a small step forward. And, you know, and I think they did. I think uh, the – the administration took a step forward with then hiring Todd Licklider to be the permanent head coach. Um, certainly unprecedented, at least in my uh, knowledge base. I don't know that anybody has, you know, essentially been pulled off, uh, you know, their, out of their living room to be the head coach on a permanent basis in midseason before. Um, but certainly understand why. I mean, coach have been in the, around the program. Uh, a lot of success at Butler and some of his other stops. So makes perfect sense, but it just is unprecedented. Yeah, I, you know, when, when the news about Coach Picardi broke, you know, I started to think, not necessarily this year, but next year, you know, who would be the coach? You know, would it be Coach Seltzer? Does he win the title as the interim, or do they go out and try to get someone else? And I think when something like this happens, you know, they they end up going to the outside and trying to bring someone else in not someone that was currently on staff. Um, but one of the first names that popped in my mind was Coach Licklider. I thought, I wonder if he would want to come back. Yeah. And the public probably didn't consider that because he had just retired in the offseason. And, and I do want to share that story. He's been more public with it now, um, especially now that he's back. But 
you know, he didn't just leave just to retire. Um, he had an accident back, I think it was late May. Um, he was working up on his house, got on top of the ladder, and actually fell off that ladder and hit his head. And, you know, he went through a several-month process where he's trying to recuperate from that. You know, he had some migraines and some vertigo. And, you know, when he had to make a decision, he didn't think he'd give his job, you know, 100% the effort that the players deserved and also the staff. So he told them, hey, I'm just going to step aside. I'm going to retire. And I think he felt, too, as an assistant coach in that first year, he offered what he could to Coach McCart and the rest of the staff as far as less in certain in-game, you know, learning opportunities from his experiences. So he just thought, well, you know, rather than, you know, take up a spot and, and risk it, I'll step aside, let someone else come in. And then he told me, um, you know, that first night he was back before the Drake game, he said, you know, a few months later, I started to feel a lot better. I was healthy. We saw him up at IUPUI late in November. Right. We actually came and spoke to the team. Yep. Um, I know he had lunch with a couple of the assistants, and uh, we actually saw him at the game. He was on our halftime show with, with Scott Schreffler. And just appeared to be very healthy, and I think you look at him, and you wouldn't even realize he had an accident. So um, there was some, you know, misinformation there. People thought, well, he retired because he didn't have the energy to do it anymore, and that was a concerning factor as far as bringing him back. But you know, in reality, it was more so with that accident is why he stepped aside. Yeah, no, I I I agree, and you know, I think you know he he mentioned me. He was like, man, I I uh, wish I would have known I'd recovered so quickly. I wouldn't have. Uh... I wouldn't, you know, it, it, he feels lucky that he got back in it because you don't mm-hmm. always get those opportunities. And uh, I, I really do believe he was itching to get back and coach again. And I think we're very lucky um, that he knew the guys and was able to step in. But, I mean, that again, now, um, and I, I will say this also, I think that I, I got to give Benny Seltzer a lot of credit for his, the mm-hmm. way he handled as well. You you mentioned the the guys, and I think you're absolutely correct about that. I mean, we didn't have to worry about them doing dumb stuff off the court and compounding it and everything. Um, but Benny, I mean, you know, he's a he's a guy who's been around college basketball for a long time, and um, he you know has pride in himself. I'm sure. So when he gets that. He thinks, hey. I, I can earn this job and this would, you know, it's a good, good job and I'd like to do it. And then six games later to have the administration come to you and go, no, nah, we don't think you're the guy. Um, you know, we didn't hear from him complaining. I mean, if you looked on the bench, he was coaching his tail off just like he would have at the beginning of the season. So I give him a lot of credit for just, uh, you know, maintaining that poise and, and doing what was right for the program and, and not complaining, at least to my knowledge. And I will say working with him was an absolute pleasure for, you know, those six games. And, you know, there were, I think, two coaches shows. And, of course, you had the pregame and postgame interviews. And I'll be honest, there were some awkward moments where you had to ask him questions that, you know, weren't super comfortable to ask him. But he always, you know, came up front, answered them with honesty, and didn't really try to hide anything. But he came in, was very professional about it, um, you know, on and off the court. And, you know, whether you agree or disagree with, you know, how he went about things or his stuff on the court, he was, no matter what he did, he was in a difficult spot because he couldn't necessarily change everything this group had done because, well, what if Coach McCarty does come back at the end of the month right, right. whenever the investigation's right. over? Yeah. yeah. So then you just change everything, and I just change back. Plus, you know, he also has to be his own guy and coach his own way. So it was just it was a tough spot for him, I think, no matter what he did. But, you know, as far as how he handled the, the whole process with me and the public, you know, I think he did an A-plus job at that. I, I couldn't agree more, um, and I, I didn't want that to get away from us before uh, we, you know, we moved mm-hmm. on. But, uh, yeah, and then and then we get Coach Licklider, and, um, you know, I, I know that he is um, head down and running hard right now. I mean, I, I will tell you this. Um, 
I, I know he was in Indy earlier this week, and not because I talked with him, um, but because I saw him at a stoplight, and I kind of looked over, and I was like, oh, hey, coach, how's it going? And uh, I think he thought, you know, some crazy person was waving at him. But uh, I know he is working hard and, and trying to, you know, recruit for this next season. But uh, you had um, – I think you had some, you know, pretty candid conversation with him once he, you know, got the group and then maybe even uh, – you know, as we are wrapping up this stuff, um, anything really stand out to you about um, what, you know, what coach's mentality was with this group to just to finish the year even? Yeah, I mean, I, I really have several stories that kind of play off of how he handled it and how he tried to change things this year. But so I'll go all the way back to uh, the January 22nd against Drake. That was the first game he technically coached, even though right. you know, he came in the day before. He was basically just on the sidelines just trying to get through that game. There wasn't a whole lot he could do. Um, but I still remember, so I, I meet with the coaches about an hour and a half from before the tip-off each night. And I met with him a little earlier, about two hours before the tip, because he had the introductory press conference um, back in the media room at Ford Center at 4.30. And tip-off at 6 o'clock. So I met with him at 4. Just him and I went and sat down. And, and before he even turned on the recorder, we just started talking. And I really hadn't seen Coach Lickflatter talk to him since the end of last season. Yeah, he was up at IEPUI in November, but <laughs> I had laryngitis that night. I could hardly talk, and so he came on at halftime, and I just waved to him. I you know, didn't have a conversation with him. Right. So that was the first time I actually sat down with him, and uh, we started talking. And the thing about Coach Licklider is I know it had only been a year, but he remembered everything about what was going on in my life, the things that I did you know, away from, from UE basketball. And we just started talking and talking about things and, you know, got brought up his injury and how he processed through that and how he's feeling now, kind of his vision toward the season. <laughs> Remember, I pulled up my phone. I'm like, man, we've been talking for a while. I checked it. It was 425. So we've been there for 25 minutes. And uh, I said, Coach, I said, can we do this premium interview? I'm sure you late to your introductory press conference. And he right. kind of chuckled. And, you know, we did the, did the interview and then moved on. But that's just kind of who Coach Licklider is, you know. If I run into him at the hotel or before we get on the team bus, I mean, he's just there to have a conversation with you. Hey, how are you doing? And and even talk non-basketball stuff. But I remember walking out of his the coach's room at Ford Center there after that, and I just kind of took a deep breath. I thought, you know what? Things are going to be okay. I don't know about this year um, as far as will they win enough games this year and stuff. But going forward, we'll get back to kind of a more stable approach, and things eventually will be okay. And that was for the first time in about a month I had that feeling. And it just kind of felt like, you know, couple hundred pounds or lift off your shoulders and now you can move move forward um right three of the things that stand out about about coach licklider is you know he's a i think he's a process guy a layer by layer guy so when he tries to build this program i hesitate using the word rebuild because there's still some pieces there um, but as he tries to rebuild this a little bit you know next year as far as will this team you know win 20 games or compete at the top half of the conference i don't know but i think you'll see a more stable approach. You'll see more progress night by night. It might not be as quickly, let's say, as the fans want. Um, you know, it's not going to go you know overnight, turn into what everyone wants. But you'll see that progress. I think will be very encouraging. And some stories just to kind of share behind the scenes that shows you what type of guy Coach Licklider is. I think it was the U and I game where uh, the team from the '90s came back, and he had Coach Cruz. Yeah. Um, I had just gotten done with my pregame chat, and he says, Jeb, do you know where Coach Cruz is? And I said, I don't. I said, I think they're out in the front lobby somewhere. So I didn't think anything of it. I, I walked away and went back, got stuff ready for the pregame show, and then I did my lap around Ford Center, went down on the concourse, and 45 minutes before tip-off, you know, with all the things coaches have to do, he was out there wanting to talk to Coach Cruz, you know, and thank him for coming back and have a conversation with him and get that relationship going again. And that meant a lot to me, and I'm sure to a lot of the Aces fans. 
Um, two other stories real quick. don't mean to ramble on too long. But uh, the second one, uh, February 10th, we had a coaches show at Tyrone's, and that is uh, my mom's birthday. So my whole family came, brother, his wife, and kids, and uh, we were sitting there after the show for about an hour and you know, having the birthday dinner and cake and stuff, and, and him and the two assistant coaches, um, Logan Bauman and Isaac McGlone, they were sitting up front having a conversation as well. My boss, Brandon McClish, shoots me a text about 7.40, as he's walking out, and said, hey, don't make too big of a deal of it, but Coach Lookout just paid for your entire family's meal for your mom's birthday. Oh, wow. So, you know, and he didn't even want to acknowledge it. You know, he wasn't going to say anything. He just told the, the waiter that he was going to pay for it, and uh, he was going to walk out and not say anything. So I'm glad Brandon, you know, sent me a text <laughs> message. We all went up and thanked him, and just little things like that go a long way. And the last one was the uh, the Bradley game. Um, so most most trips I travel with the team. Occasionally I'll travel separately. Well, at Bradley, they have an arena kind of like Ford Center um, where it's played for hockey. And to be honest, as a media member, it's it's kind of a pain to get into. You have to go through a bunch of security. Yep. The broadcast spot is way up top in the corner, so I'm, I'm, it takes me forever to get down the locker. Yeah, they put you up up in the skybox, don't they? Yeah. At yeah, Bradley? It's, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's I forget what the SIU broadcaster calls it, something corner. Or, uh, <laughs> but anyways, where right. it's it, it's a joke for with where the location is. It's kind of hard to broadcast a game from there. But anyways – so I try to get set up, and like I said, go down and talk with the coach an hour and a half before tip. And, and some coaches are more strict on, hey, you have to be here a certain amount of time to, to do this. Well, Coach Lockhart is pretty laid back, but you don't want to abuse that. You still respect the, hey, let's be an hour and a half before tip. Mm-hmm. So I get I get set up um, a little later than usual because of security and trying to get in, and it was like 11.35, 11.40. Crap, I'm behind schedule. I need to get down there. So I hurry down there to the coach's room. He wasn't in there. And I'd say, you know, 90% of the coaches, I'd be worried they're going to be ticked at me for being late. Right. And so I tell one assistant that, hey, tell Coach Lookout, I know I'm late. I'm in his coach's office. Just whenever he gets a chance, you know, come on in. I think I sat there probably for five minutes. You know, so it's an hour and 15 minutes for tip-off. He comes in almost out of breath apologizing because he made me wait. I said, Coach, I said, I'm the one that was late. I said, you have nothing to worry about. If you've got plenty of other stuff to worry about besides this pregame interview, I said, I'm sorry. I was like, just got caught up going through security and stuff. And he said, oh, no problem. I should have made you wait this long. But just – for a coach like that to come in there and apologize that he was late when in reality I was. So it's just, he's such a joy to work with and, and I can't, you know, can't wait for this next season to work more with him. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I think you're spot on with that. I mean, people, people root for that guy because he is a good dude. And you know, like that resonates in recruiting that resonates in all the things you have to do as a college basketball coach. And, and I will just say this to all our listeners, um, you know, talking about Coach Licklider being a brick-by-brick process guy, think about this. Gonzaga and Butler are years in the making. I mean, maybe decades, mm-hmm. right? Like, Mark Few is as good as he's been. I mean, that he's been there a long time. Butler, um, you know, when I was at Evansville, was not nearly as good as Evansville. And, you know, they've – but over time, they brick by brick put this thing together, and now the program is where it is. So, um, you know, we certainly have um, the foundation for it with Coach Licklider, and, and now we just got to start the process. And, and, and the fans, you know, uh, will rally. I have no doubt that they'll rally around him, truthfully. I mean, we yeah. – you, you take a season like we had, and you're the second, um, you know, largest fan base in the conference – uh, and going over. I mean, just wait. Just wait until we start rolling, man. Right. And just think, you know, to where we were at already early non-conference season, almost 8,000 there for the Murray State game. And then go to late February 
a team that hasn't won in, in almost two months playing Indiana State at home on a Sunday. And I think they announced over 5,000 people at Ford Center. And, you know, the lower bowl is mostly full. And I think that, you know, tells you the support that the Aces fans provide for this group, even in tough times. And I want to go back to the point you made about the brick-by-brick approach with, approach with Coach Licklar and ask you a question. Okay. You go back to kind of where we're at, you know, with with the Coach McCarty approach in November and December. I'm not getting into, you know, what style is right, what style is wrong. When we talk about the stability and trying to build a program that will last for several years, he certainly had talented guys on this team, but now that the season's played out and you look back, they really didn't have a true point guard and they didn't have a true post player. I think that's the difference you'll get with Coach Licklider as far as trying to build it brick by brick and maybe not necessarily looking at, oh, this guy's the most talented, let's bring him in right now. Do you think do you think Coach Licklider will give a better approach in that sense? I do, and here's why. Because when he was at Butler and when those Butler teams were really, really good, they always had a great point guard. And that because you can control the basketball, and if you control the basketball, you get better shots. And guess what? If you take better shots than the opponent, you have a really good chance at winning. Um, Additionally, in our league, in the Missouri Valley Conference, if you look at Northern Iowa specifically, anytime Jake's had a really good point guard, they've been really good. If they yeah. if their point guard is not that good, then they're not that good, um, and so that that starts it. And then other people want to play with good point guards, right? So talented guys want to play with other talented guys. And if you say to somebody, "Hey, uh, let's say they're a wing or they're a post guy," and you go, "Hey, listen, this is our point guard, and he can get you the ball, and he can get you the ball in the right spot, so that you makes your life easier," then what guys do is they go, Hey, I want to make my life easier and I want to have fun because winning is fun. And so it all kind of rolls from there. So, um, I do, I think, um, and you know, um, not to diminish the guys on our team. I, I really like Shamar, but, um, you mm-hmm. know, like he, um, you know, he, I think he would tell you, he's like, Hey, I've got some improvement to make. Um, but I think he's, he's, he has a chance to be really good. Um, I mean, most guys can't, you know, cover the floor in the time that he can cover it. So right. that's a big start. And that's how guys like um, uh, the Jackson kid at Butler were back when Coach Licklider was coaching those teams and had it really rolling. So um, I right. really do. I think point guard play is huge, and I think Coach understands that. When I think with Shamar, I mean, I like his, his game a lot if you put him in the right role. So I think with Shamar, he's perfect for, for late-game situations when you have to handle some pressure because he he's a one-man press breaker, just yep. give him the ball and let him go to work. Um, but also, I'd like to see Shamar play where he has three or four weapons around him that can shoot. I think you put Shamar on a team like you and I, where they have so many different three-point shooters, yeah. Yeah. You know, then you kind of pick who you guard. And with Shamar, if he could just develop a little bit of a jumper to where he could be some of a threat to score, I'm not talking 10, 12 points a night, but even if it's just five or six points a night where he can pull up and hit a shot, then the defense has to guard him and he's able to pass much easier and leave some other guys open. Um, so I, I mean, I like Shamar. I think with where he's at in his game, he, he's a type of player that could come off the bench and give you 15, 20 minutes, being late in the game to handle that pressure, um, and you know, put some weapons around him. But yeah, they have to get a true point guard that can start and give you 30 minutes a night. You know, we talk about the point guard position, but also talk about the five position down low. And it's ironic because most of college basketball and certainly the NBA. You know, has transitioned away from that number five spot right. and basically just have gone to the three-point arc. But you look at the Missouri Valley Conference, just about every good team has a big they can play through. You think of Austin Five for you and I. Five 
is the perfect example to what I compare with what I would like to see UE get. A guy that can give you seven or eight points a night, he can rebound well, and if you need to play through him at certain moments in the game, you can, which opens up more on the perimeter. So you have him with you and I. You, of course, have the Cretwick Keg at Loyola. You have Childs at Bradley. I know Drake was an eight seed, but they still won 20 games this year. Um, so they were talented. They have Liam Robbins down, down Robbins low. Robbins is a big kid. Yeah. is really good. Yeah. Yep. And then SIU, they have Damask, who's not your typical technically post player, but he's a big guy that can post up down low in the paint. So that's five teams right there that have a big and have had success with it. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, and and I will just say this. I, I think – I was kind of thinking about this when you we were talking about Shamar, but really this goes for all the guys. Um, the two biggest things – is one just kind of clear in their head um you know we shoot 31 percent from the three-point land you know like if you can just uh for the season i guess 32 percent. sorry um for the season if if you shoot 33 percent from the the floor for the season that um you know well we had what three four overtime games so if you shoot one percentage point better from three-point land you know you probably win a couple of those um mm-hmm. and then the second thing is the weight room um, I think the guys need to really take a look at the other teams in the league. Uh, Bradley, you know, wins the conference tournament for the second year in a row. And those guys, you can all tell, have been really, really serious about the weight room. And, you know, they they just look like, um, hey, you want to fight? And here's the thing, what happens, and we'll, we'll talk about the Missouri Valley Conference here uh, tournament a little bit and how crazy that was. But as the season goes on, and I know you – uh, officiate as well so it's interesting like at the beginning of the season um, there's all these points of emphasis that you guys kind of get um, harped on to call and all that stuff and then at the end of the season the game gets much more physical and so if you can be pretty serious about the weight room I think all these guys are close like I like Shamar's form um, he, he's got a chance but it just is uh, you know you just got to turn the screws and be just a little bit better every day you mentioned the weight room, and, and I agree. Um, and I also think conditioning. Um, I don't know. This is just my observation. I don't know how well conditioned this group was going into the season. And just to piggyback off that with some substance to back it up, they didn't really shoot the ball well in second halves of games. You always kind of saw their shooting right. decrease as the game went along. And, and that's probably true for most teams. Um, but I saw a lot of tired legs. Um, I had this conversation with my partner, Scott Treffer, multiple times. You know, certain guys would be playing well, and then he'd look, and they would you know, be tugging on their jersey, asking out of the game. I'm thinking, man, how could you ask out of the game? We just scored you know, eight <laughs> straight points. You're playing well. Why do you right. want to come out? Right. And I, did, I noticed that, especially early in the season. Um, so I don't know how well they were conditioned. Again, that's just an observation. Maybe they were. Um, but that's something that, that we noticed. Well, and, and I agree. Um, you know, I, don't, I wasn't there. I don't know. And, uh, you know, certainly understand, though, that – Man, a lot of this, it, it's its the whole old phrase, right? Um, you know, fatigue makes cowards of us all, right? So if you're fatigued, um, you know, do you block out as hard as you need to for a rebound? Do you dive on the ball? Do you sprint to your spot? All those things, you just have to be in peak condition because we know there's no, there's no um, room for error. You know, we talked about it all season long, and the Missouri Valley Conference was just chaos. Uh, top to bottom, Northern Iowa really separated themselves, and Loyola was really good as well. But but for the most part, every single game, I mean, we even take a team like us who, you know, we, we don't win a single game. Well, 
we were in most of them. I mean, there, there's no team that was truly scary to us. Um, and you go to the Missouri Valley tournament, and it just kept on with the with the chaos, right? You know, our championship game has the number four seed versus the number seven seed. For the first time in Missouri Valley history, a team goes from playing on Thursday to playing on Sunday on CBS with a chance to play in the NCAA tournament. And, you know, that to me was perfect for the season because I just I could see it from the get that this was just going to be one of those years where you could have, um, you know, the un, the unthinkable happen on Sunday. Yeah, and even I mean your your eight seed Drake won twenty games this year, and you know, <laughs> right. they play they play you and I on that Friday and just absolutely whip them. Destroyed and them. Uh, yeah, and Ben Jacobson made the comment afterwards. He said, "You know what? I think we could have played well tonight and still not have won. That's how good Drake Drake can be and how well they played tonight." Right. Um, and then I think going into the conference tournament, you could make the argument seven, maybe even eight teams had a chance to go over there and win that. Yep. Um, but another thing that really stands out about the Missouri Valley Conference is not that, okay, they had their one good year and all this talent's going to leave. <laughs> There's some really good young talent. I mean, Man. of course, the obvious one is, is A.J. Green with you and I. He was just a sophomore, so he has two more years. And I should uh, say this before you go on, because when I had my last episode, the last episode of our listeners, um, they had not released A.J. Green as being the Missouri Valley Conference Player of the Year, so I didn't quite get to that. But then he becomes the Player of the Year, which – I think was, uh, you know, kind of uh, everybody thought that would be the how that would shake out, but uh, wasn't for certain until after we recorded our last episode. But he's a sophomore, to your point, and there's a bunch of other young talent in the league, which means the league's going to be good for a while. I think uh, it would have to pick. I like watching Damask from SIU, but between him and Green are probably my two favorite players to watch in the Valley. Yep. With Green, you know, you, you look at him at warm-ups, and if you had – no knowledge of the Missouri Valley Conference or of the team or anything. I just walked in the gym and you'd think, well, that guy probably plays just a few minutes or he sits in the end of the bench just with how he looks and kind of how he goes about his things. It's very under the right. radar and even, even quiet during warmups. Yes. But I'm um, actually sat, you know, courtside for probably 10 or 15 minutes when they were in town back in February and just watched him during warmups. For that 10 or 15 minute span, I think he missed less than five shots. I mean, it was just unbelievable. And you look at his shot, it's not necessarily a quick release, um, and it's a little bit unorthodox, but he gets it off with ease. Even with a guy, you know, right up in his face and all kinds of pressure, he's able to elevate over them and shoot. So he's fun to watch. Um, he puts it behind his head, so you can't ever get to it. Right. And, you know, it's not not a quick release. And to a degree, it's kind of like a DeAndre Williams where he just kind of loads it up. DeAndre's shot's much slower than than Green's. Um, But... You know, DeAndre is able to elevate over people, too, and, and shoot. Um, that would be kind of a comparison. But with the Crowick kick at Loyola, he's, he was a junior, right? So That's he has correct. one more year. Yep. Uh, mentioned Damascus. But they have good uh, guards. Like, they have good young guards. Um, so does Illinois State. Have They have really good young guards. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Damascus at Southern Illinois. He was a, um, a freshman. Um, I mean, Indiana State has two of the best freshman post players in the conference, right, yeah. in um, – um, in Williams and um, Laravia, who I just yeah. I love, um, and then you Green, and, yeah. you, you know the list goes on. Robbins is a sophomore, and he's probably an NBA guy. You know, so you yeah. just you, you just the whole league is just loaded. And you know, Valpo has good guards. The only team right. where you maybe say, oh, they don't have you know a large amount of talent that's young would be Missouri State. They have a lot of transfers this year, right? Um, but I mean, they're still not a team you can take for granted. But, yeah, just from, from top to bottom. And even look at Illinois State, a team that, you know, finishes ninth. They win 10 total games or 5-13 and 13 in the conference. 
Coach Lucklow used this term in a pregame chat with, about the Redbirds. He said they have scary talent. They haven't won a whole lot of games, but they have scary talent right. with guys that can put up numbers still. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. I think you know we had we obviously didn't like the way that our season went, but uh, the Missouri Valley Conference was was fantastic the entire year, and you know given the fact that it's going to be better next year and the year after, I man, I can't wait. I, I really can't wait. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, you know, and maybe that's a good time to kind of think about, uh, you know, let's let's talk about we would we would expect to bring back good talent too. I mean, uh, I would hope that DeAndre's back um, would heal for him, um, and you know, obviously misses uh, what twelve games is that what he missed this year? Twelve games uh, this season. So I mean, if you put him in the lineup, a healthy DeAndre Williams in the lineup, that changes things dramatically. Right. He played in um, he played the first two conference games, and then he played in three before getting hurt. So he missed five Valley games. So what is that? And he missed 13 games then? Okay, 13, um, yep. So, yeah, I mean, you know, hopefully he's back and, you know, get some time to get healthy with a back injury as well. Um, you know, I think a lot of the topic, you know, this year was, oh, well, the team's struggling because they don't have Coach McCarty. Well, maybe in the, in the long term, yes, but in the immediate presence it was you're missing DeAndre Williams that's 20 points a night seven or eight rebounds and just a guy you can play through and also down the stretch in close games and the average margin of loss um was six or seven points under coach Lucklider since he you know came back to Evansville so you throw in a guy that can score for you down the stretch and average 20 points a night you know that six or seven points a game your average margin of loss then probably turns into four or five more wins so that's a big key you know if you get him back um you'll have the Nebraska kid and, and Shamari Curtis. Um, mm-hmm. I'll be honest with you. Since he went to camp or he got to campus, I have not seen him, you know, practice a whole lot. Um, so I personally don't have an opinion on him. But I know talking with Scott Schreffler, he's very high on the kid. And he thinks he's going to be um, a lot of fun to watch and you know, be really impactful here at UE. You got the the Trey Hall kid. As far as I know, he's still coming in. I don't know if that's going to change or if right. it's changed. Very highly um, talented. So yeah. Yeah, you have some you have some pieces to work with next year, and that's why I hesitate on saying, well, it's a rebuild for for Coach Lutzweiler. And you know, it's, it's some people probably think I'm crazy after you go 0 18 saying it's not a rebuild, but you do have pieces there. Um, you just kind of have to retool a bit and you know find a system that works for these guys. And I think Coach Lutzweiler will. Yeah, and I mean, let's not let's not throw out. I mean, if Sam Cunliffe comes back, and I have every reason to right. believe he is, he's the best athlete in the conference. Um, you yeah. know, like he he worked through some things this year, and uh, but he. We would expect him to be better, and any given night, he's poised to be the best player on the floor because he's just a freak athlete. So, uh, to your point, the you know we're turning the page, but I'm not convinced it's a total rebuild. I mean, I I love the how hard Juwan Newton plays. Uh, we right. talked about Shamar. I think uh, Marcus Henderson, it really can shoot the ball. I mean, he's a he, he can really shoot it. So as he gets a little stronger and understands where his shots can come from, that helps. Um, you know, John Hall and Evan Kuhlman, we would expect those guys to be stronger. And and here's what happens too: as seniors, um, as seniors, you realize that the clock is ticking and time is running out, and you better get to it. And mm-hmm. so things like um, you know going the just not cutting any corners things you do like as young kids do they kind of think like oh we've always got this time um you know i think evan and john especially watching the ncaa tournament get ripped from uh the other guys that they were playing against they they might think oh hey this is this is our chance we better capture the moment and uh i I would expect they would truthfully well two names you mentioned about 
playing well down the stretch of the season. Juwan Newton really improved offensively. But he, always, he was always fairly solid defensively. He made the hustle plays, but his offensive game improved a lot. And then Evan Kuhlman was the, the largest improvement, I thought. I think over his last 10 games or 10 starts, he was averaging in double figures points per game. And, you know, the system that Coach Licklider, you know, coaches, you know, I think fits Evan Kuhlman a lot better than, you know, what the Coach McCarty system was. Sure. Not as... Not, not as up and down and not as uh, one-on-one. Um, so I think Evan, you know, learned some things of how to play the game better under Coach Licklider, and that'll help him into next season. Uh, so I'm excited to see how he builds off that and then you know, add the other pieces as well. And I think it could turn around quicker than maybe some people think. I, I'm with you, and, I, you know, I'm the eternal optimist. Um, certainly have my uh, purple-colored uh, glasses on at all times, but uh, – <laughs> You know, I'm a complete honk. I mean, let's just be honest. That being said, I, I, I'm not like down on this group for for next year. And certainly, we'll see um, how the final roster shakes out in college basketball all across the country. I mean, with the transfer portals and all the things that go on, um, you know that it's not it's not a shock to say Evansville's roster could be completely different next year. I mean, that's just, that's everybody's mm-hmm. roster. So that's a pretty generic statement truthfully. But, uh, but I, you know, to your point, if we, if we bring back the guys we think will come back and maybe add a piece or two, um, you know, even in the Missouri Valley, which is as tough as um, any league in the country. I mean, we, you know, winning on the road is almost impossible. It's the toughest league in the country to win on the road at, um, you know, we, I, I still like our chances, and I like how this team shapes up for next year. And that's why, I, you know, I ask fans this question. I've had a conversation with them about, uh, well, they went 0-18. Oh, it's, it's, they're so far away from being competitive. And I said, well, what would have changed your mind? Okay, so you had, let's say you take even three or four of those close losses, and you finish with four or five conference wins, whatever. Does that really change the outlook of, of where this team is <laughs> heading into next year? No, right, it doesn't. So right. ignore the 0-18 oh, and, and just kind of pay attention to how they played the final month and a half under Coach Flatter without even really him putting him in system. It was just certain pieces and him trying to change a few things. And, you know, I think he was hopeful to use this offseason to really, really change uh, the culture a bit and change how they go about things. Now with this coronavirus, that impacts him as it affects every team, you know, across college basketball. So he's going to lose out on some time there with that, which will be interesting to chat with him, how he handles it. And, you know, does that impact his, you know, progress as far as trying to retool this group? But, I think uh, I think they're closer than than what many people maybe perceive them to be from the outside. Yeah, and I think what people should know, and if they don't know already, so th- with the coronavirus and just you know the world being shut down, what the NCAA has done is declared it a quiet period, meaning that coaches mm-hmm. can't call recruits, they can't um, you know they can't do that stuff that they would normally be doing during this period. So it, it does hinder us a little bit. Um, I think because I know coach would be very, very active otherwise. Um, but, you know, he plays within the rules and the rules are there for everybody except, I don't know, maybe Arizona and Duke, I'm guessing. But um, everybody else has the same uh, rules to play under. And then, um, you know, then and we go from there. But, uh, yeah, I'd, you know, um, as nuts as this season was, as just upside down and, you know, just as crazy as it can be, I'm really pretty optimistic. Um, you know, certainly we were all looking forward to, you know, as we record this, 
tomorrow is typically my Christmas, um, meaning it's the first day of the NCAA basketball tournament. I, you know, it's, I don't know if it's a holiday for anybody, but it's a holiday for me. And, um, you know, I'm, I was really, and it was just stopped. Uh, and this whole world has just been kind of, uh, stopped because of this stuff and, you know, we'll, we'll all deal with it. But, um, and because of that, right. Uh, the university has essentially sent all the kids home. We, uh, all the spring sports have stopped. Um, but if we're talking about ending on a high note, I think the university did, right. Um, you want to talk a little bit about the baseball program and, and how we ended that deal? Yeah. So what is today? Today's Wednesday, right? Yes. Yeah. When you're on vacation, all stuff's going on. You don't really pay attention to what day <laughs> right. it is. Uh, nothing really matters at this point, but yeah. So last, I was going to say we could go today, but it was, uh, eight days ago on Tuesday, March 10th, uh, Coach Wes Carroll for the baseball team got to open up the um, re, I guess retooled field. It's not a brand new field, but new German American Bank turf field. And they had some renovations um, to Charles H. Braun Stadium with the new scoreboard out left center field, some padded walls, new dugouts, new bullpens, and uh, opened that up with a 5 4 win against Indiana. So um, it was a very special night for him. It was, you know, a long time coming for the field, um, you know, to be be redone. I know he was very excited. And I feel bad for him and the players because they've been looking forward to that day for quite some time. You play one game, then all of a sudden you have the rest of your, your season wiped away. And it's um, gorgeous to too. I mean, that field is, is gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. And they were supposed to play Purdue in a three-game series last weekend at the IU game. And obviously that didn't happen. But um, they got off to somewhat of a slow start. They, they lost their first eight games of the season. Um, several late-inning collapses where they had leads in the 7th and 8th. They bounced back. They had uh, they swept Butler at Bossy Field, and he beat IU, and they're starting to play better baseball. So I was looking forward to seeing how the rest of their year played out. And then uh, softball also had their home opener that same day against Purdue Fort Wayne and won 11 nothing. Um, Matt Mundell is doing a good job with that group. They they were 12 and 11. They were a game above 500. Um, they've been playing some good softball as well. So they, uh, I guess you could say, they ended on a high note, just much earlier than everyone was anticipating. Yeah, I think that's um, probably the best way we could have ended the the year as a school, um, just on a high note. And, uh, you know, let's turn the page, uh, get past all this, uh, you know, potential earth-shattering sickness and do what's right from that standpoint. And, and hopefully it's all past us um, at some point early this summer so we can, you know, start back mm-hmm. and, and really uh, get ready to go. Uh, for the next year because um, it, it could be re- really exciting. Obviously, there's going to be lots of changes, but um, reason for optimism in my mind. Yeah, I hope, you know, with everything that's going on, you know, the conversation is what's the, what's the timetable for this? No one really knows, um, but you just hope by the time the fall season rolls around with high school sports and, of course, university sports and school and being in session you hope by by the fall i think it's back to fairly normal um but you know unfortunately i think this this wire thing is going to stretch in the summer um so rex if you have any hobbies uh, that you know of that i need to try out you know shoot them my way because without sports i'm still searching <laughs> oh buddy um yeah can we golf i mean is that possible or are they going to allow us to do that or golf courts course is going to be open i don't, I don't know but I don't know. Uh, It'll be exciting times. Uh, hey, Jevin, thanks for so much for coming on. You were spectacular as always. Um, appreciate your insight um, for the th- this whole season, really. And and I wish you well. Um, like I wish all of our listeners well. Stay safe out there, guys, girls. Um, 
And, um, yeah, I, I hope you enjoyed this season-ending recap. Um, and remember, play tough on defense, play fast on offense, be great teammates, and I will see you at the Ford Center.